chapter 1, Zephaniah chapter 1. I'm calling this Introduction to Zephaniah. So what's the difference between the survey we did and the introduction? Like I said about Luke, not much. It's just part 2. I just don't want to call it part 2. But there's a lot to say, as we did our survey last Wednesday night. <clears throat> we'll kind of continue on. And then next week we'll jump into a lot of the judgment passages in the book. Zephaniah chapter 1, go and stand with me if you're able to, as we read the scripture this evening. Zephaniah chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 3. The Bible says, The word of the Lord, which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezkiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heavens and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. Lord, bless your word tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. There's a longer judgment passage that runs from chapter 1, verse 4, into early chapter 2. We'll start that next week. We're going to break that one down. It's hard to find where to cut off in the middle of a judgment passage. It's too much to cover. It would be a three-hour message if we did it all at once. But, but I'm trying to find the best places to cut off these judgment passages to kind of break up the sermon a little bit. But I figured we start this one in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 as a warning of coming universal judgment. The, the judgment that we see in chapter 1, verse 4 to chapter 2 is specifically aimed at Judah and then surrounding nations. But in this opening couple of verses here, he's actually talking about universal judgment that's coming. God's coming to judge the world. Did you know that? God's going to judge the world. And that's what he's talking about right here in this chapter, or this portion of the chapter. Let's start in verse number 1. It says, The word of the Lord, which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushiah, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezkiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So we see here the lineage of the prophet Zephaniah. His father was Cushai, his grandfather was Gedaliah, his great-grandfather was Amariah, and his great-great-grandfather was the famous king Hezekiah. One note to consider is that the lineage of a prophet is usually not so extensive in the Bible. I think the fact that he is related to the famous king probably allow, they allowed him to put more of his lineage into the chapter. He was a relative of King Josiah, with the king having descended in the royal line through Manasseh. He prophesied, I'm going to say this, after Josiah found the book of the law. Depends who you read these days. If you read most modern scholars, they're going to tell you that he wrote before Josiah found the book, before, early in Josiah's reign. And they do this because modern scholars love to come to conclusions that disagree with the scripture. So they say, well, the scripture's wrong here. We know this from this historical factor, this historical. Listen, when history and the Bible collide, the Bible is always right. Okay, And the unsaved world have every reason to believe the Bible's wrong. Because the Bible condemns their sin. So most of the modern scholars, I think, are probably unsaved men. 
who would benefit from the Bible being wrong. They hope the Bible is wrong, but it's not. I believe he found, or he wrote this prophecy after the, and I would say during the revival that came during Josiah. Compared, a couple of verses with me. Compared Deuteronomy 28.39. Turn there real quick. Deuteronomy 28.39. I think this provides good evidence for my argument. When I say most modern scholars early date this book, I also need to mention that most of the old dead guys late date this book. The old dead guys are more trustworthy than the current guys. Deuteronomy 28, 39. The Bible says, Thou shalt plant vineyards and dress them, but shalt neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. Now go back to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 13. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 13. Let's make a comparison here. I just realized it would be easier to read Zephaniah first. But anyways, it is what it is. Zephaniah 1.13. Therefore their goods shall become a booty, and their houses a desolation. They shall also build houses, but not inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine thereof. The fact he's quoting from the law tells me this was after the law had been found. Remember, when Josiah found the book of the law in the temple, what, ha- what did we find out there? We found out that he had never read the book of the law. Right? He, he was unfamiliar with the law of God. He didn't know the law. So the fact that Zephaniah is quoting from Deuteronomy here tells me this is after they found the book of the law, after Josiah made his reforms during the time of revival in Judah. Another interesting point of Zephaniah is that Zephaniah, and I was talking about this with uh, I think it was, uh, Melissa and Jason the other day, that Zephaniah was probably black, or at least colored in skin. So why is that important, Pastor? Well, it's important because it demonstrates the diversity and inclusivity within the heart of God. I think it's important. His father is said to be Cushai. Some Jewish commentators have argued this is simply a name with no racial meaning, but let's compare Scripture with Scripture. Turn to Genesis chapter 10, verse 6. Cush is the son of Ham, descended from Noah. Genesis 10, verse 6. These kind of facts are important also because there are two opposing viewpoints that are on the rise today. One is black Hebrew Israelism, which teaches that the African races are the true Jews of the Bible. And then you have those who believe that Christianity is a white man's religion. Both of those are wrong. Both are extremes and unbiblical. Genesis 10.6, And the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mizraim, and Phut, and Canaan, and the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Sabta, and Ramah, and Sabta, that guy, and the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Ham is considered the father of the dark races. Many derive this word from a Hebrew root and explain it as dark or sunburnt. Javith, they connect with a word meaning to be fair. And so Ham is the father of dark races. Japheth is the father of the fair complexion. Well, the olive colored come from Shem. That'd be the, uh, the, the Jews, the Semitic races of the Middle East would come from Shem. Cush settled in the area, most likely of modern-day Iraq and possibly Iran. Moses married a Cushite woman. Turn to Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. 
Numbers 12, verse 1. Numbers 12.1. Bible says, And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Biblically, they're called Ethiopians. They're not related to modern-day Ethiopians. They would have began in the area of Iraq and later expanded and moved into modern-day Sudan. Zephaniah mentions Cush a great deal. Go back to Zephaniah real quick. Zephaniah 2, verse 12. Zephaniah 2, verse 12. The Bible says, Ye Ethiopians also, ye should be slain by my sword. The reference uh, to the Ethiopian is a reference to the Cushite Empire. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my supplicants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. When people call Christianity a white man's religion... Remind them that the Jewish people included Jesus from the line of Shem. There are prominent people of color in the Bible, most notably Simon of Cyrene, who bore the cross after Jesus. Cyrene is in Africa. For all intents and purposes, we can safely and educated, educated, make an educated guess that he was indeed a dark-skinned person. The gospel went from Jerusalem and spread out from there. This means that due to proximity, Asians and Africans received it before Europeans. you realize that? People today think our religion is a white man's religion. We were actually the last ones to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It went to the Asians and the Africans before it ever came to the Europeans. The eunuch in Acts was black. He was from Ethiopia or the area about Sudan. He was there for a Jewish feast, meaning he worshipped the one true God. He was saved, and he took the gospel back with him long before the white man ever received it. As I mentioned in my Luke series, he was probably black as well. That doesn't get mentioned very often. Remember, Jews had been dispersed throughout the world. They had intermarried. There were African Jews in Africa. Don't buy into this white man's religion nonsense. God is the God of all men. We who have received the gospel owe the gospel to every other man, regardless of what, they, what language they speak, what color they are, what their culture is, where they live. Say, why do you guys go down to Mexico to the, to the refugee camps? Because we owe them the gospel. We owe them the gospel. We owe it to everybody. Why do we go to Wilson Park? Because we owe them the gospel. Why go to FPA? We owe them the gospel. <clears throat> Why go to Disneyland? We owe them the gospel. Why preach on freeways? We owe them the gospel. Every saved person owes every lost person this side of hell the gospel. That's our responsibility. The black Hebrew Israelites claim they are the true Jewish race, but there's, of course, no evidence for such a claim. All black people are not Jews, but some Jews are black people. There were captives in intermarriage. Don't allow groups to take these true facts and twist them into false teaching. That's why it's so important to know our Bible. 
Because they're going to take little things like this, and they're going to take it out of context, and they're going to use it to propagate their false religion. In the bloodline of Jesus are mixed various tribes, tongues, and colors. You know why? Because God is redeeming all of mankind. You realize there's Edomites in the, in the lineage of Jesus. There's Canaanites in the lineage of Jesus. I love looking over the, the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ and studying out each of the names that are put in there to see the wide variety of people. Say, so who's the one pure race? Remember that? World War II? One pure, you, know who, you know who the one pure race is? Jesus Christ. And in him is all the races of the world. He's redeeming the world. We need to remember that. For God so loved the world. And we should too, by the way. John 3.16 is so common to us, isn't it? But how about to Nicodemus when he heard it? See, he had been raised, while there are some who were raised to be Jew haters, he was one of those Jews who had pride in Israel. Well, we're God's chosen people. We're the only ones going to heaven. We're already in. And Jesus said, for God so loved the world. Nicodemus was stunned. What does that mean? Jesus came for, he didn't come for the Jew. He came for the world. What was said when he was brought to the temple for it to be dedicated? A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. See, the, the Jews were supposed to be the light of God to the Gentile nations. They didn't do that, did they? So Jesus came. And in Jesus, all men are reconciled. Say, well, who does God care about? What's the most important race to God? Every person who is his sheep from every nation under heaven are of equal value to Jesus Christ. Listen, I would be so excited if the president got saved. Wouldn't you? What an exciting moment in history. You know that God is just as excited when a poor shepherd boy on the hillsides of Indonesia that nobody knows about when he gets saved as he is about the President of the United States. God loves the world. Racism and prejudice have no place in the Christian life. They have no place in Christian thought. Some people will take things like these references to Cush in the Bible and say, oh, see, see, look at these black people. Look at these dark colored people in the Bible. That means we're, and then white people have used the Bible over and over again to oppress other people. You know who Jesus came for? Everybody. What did Revelation say? People from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. You know who God's most hated enemies were in the Bible? How about the Philistines? You know there are Philistines in heaven? So how do you know? Because it says every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Well, the Edomites, boy, they cause trouble. There's Edomites in heaven. You know how I know? Every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. The gospel's for the world. We cannot let that go. Our world is breaking down today, church. It's breaking down into factions and 
I mean, people are advocating for segregation. I mean, we're going way, but we're going back. Safe spaces for this kind of person and safe spaces for this kind of, you know, Jesus came for everybody. We've got to make sure we're sharing the gospel with everybody. We're not better than other people because we're white. You may not be white in here, I understand that. I'm saying Americans in general. We're not better because we're rich. We're not better because we're militarily strong. We're not better than anybody in the world. The gospel's for everybody. You know, there are actually people. There are actually, Max will back me up on this. There are actually pastors who don't believe we should be going to those poor refugees in Mexico. They don't, they don't matter. They're not important. You need to reach the people around your church who actually come to your church and give in the offering. Those are the ones that are important. No, sir. The gospel's for everybody. It's for the whole world. I used to try to raise support from churches to go spend my time in the prisons ministering. And I had pastors, several pastors tell me, we're not going to support you. We, we appreciate what you're doing, but we're not going to support Why? Well, what do we care about guys in prison? They'll never come to our church. They'll never contribute to our offering. The gospel is not driven by money. The gospel is owed to every person under heaven. So I love these little tidbits like about Zephaniah and the Bible because it shows us the diversity of God. Our God's a diverse God. Our church is a diverse church. I love that. I think it's a good picture of God's plan for his people. I think heaven's going to be an amazing place with people from every single tribe and nation who has ever walked the earth praising the triune God. God truly did love the world. So we got to remember that. Don't give in to the spirit of the age. It's not about factions. It's not about one. You know, in Christ, there's no male or female, rich or poor, free or bond. We're all one in Christ. You understand that, right? Now, we have differing offices, differing gifts. I'm not saying we're all equal that a woman can pastor. Or that's what I'm saying. But before God, our value is the same. We need to remember that. The days of black power and white power those days need to end. The power of the gospel is the only true power we need to worry about. Verse 2. Let's move on here. He says, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. Now in verses 2 and 3, the prophet begins with a proclamation of universal judgment. God is ju- coming to judge all the nations of the world. That hasn't changed from Zephaniah's time to ours. God is coming to judge the nations of the world. He's doing it right now. As we speak, he's judging nations. Whom he wants to, he lifts up. Whom he wants to, he puts down. All according to his own good pleasure. Let me demonstrate the universality of this judgment. He says he will utterly consume all things from off the land. The word in the Hebrew is Adama. 
And it means ground or dirt. This is not speaking of the land of Israel. This is speaking of the earth, the ground, the dirt. This is important to understand. I think a lot of people get mistaken when they see these words in English. In the book of Revelation, they get confused. They see the word earth a lot. And they assume it means the whole world, but the Greek word there is actually gi. as a reference to the land of Israel specifically. Here, the reference is not specifically to the land of Israel, but to the world itself. God is promising to remove all things from this world, all sin. The curse will be lifted. Verse 3, I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heavens and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. We can get the same context by breaking down some of the wording here. What will he consume? What does he say here? Man and beast, birds of the air, fishes of the sea. This is a direct correlation to the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2. He created the vows of the air, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the earth, man. We also have a correlation to the worldwide judgments of Genesis chapter 6. Hold your place here, but turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verse number 7. The Bible says, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. So we see in Zephaniah's prophecy a correlation to the creation account. One argument that's made against the flood by skeptics is that it was just a small localized flood. You guys ever heard that before? Just a small local flood. It wasn't a worldwide flood at all. Of course, that's untrue. We know that. And with the, with the similarity to Zephaniah 1.3, you can understand the difficulty in making this a localized judgment. If you make Zephaniah's judgment here, local, just to the land of Israel, then you have a problem with the flood account because of the similarity of the two things. He mentions here the, the man and beast, the fowls of the air. How can God wipe out everyone from the earth in judgment? What about the Christians? Look at verse number 8. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So God says, I'm going to wipe everyone out I'm going to destroy everything from off the land. I'm going to destroy everything that I have created. He says, uh, from the face of the earth, man and beast, creeping thing, the fowls of the air. I'm going to destroy all of it. Say, well, did he go back on his promise? He spared Noah and his family. He said, well, but, but Noah found grace in his eyes. Noah found grace, and Noah was protected from the judgment. So when Zephaniah pronounces this judgment, he said, well, what about all the Christians? Well, they're like, no, they found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God will preserve his people in the face of great judgment. We talked about this last week. God will protect his people from judgment sometimes or through judgment other times. 
examples we gave were, uh, what did we give last week? We gave uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot was brought out of Sodom before judgment. He was preserved from the judgment that fell upon Sodom. Uh, example of those who were preserved through judgment would be Daniel and those three Hebrew children, as we call them. Did they escape the armies of Nebuchadnezzar? No, they didn't. They didn't escape. They were taken as slaves, as servants, never returned. As far as we know, Daniel never returned. You realize that when they were taken as slaves, they were taken as eunuchs, right? They were castrated. They were they never had families. They never lived normal lives. They, were, they would forever serve the king of Babylon or the successive kings who came over there. But what did God do for Daniel and his friends? He preserved them through judgment. He put them in high positions, gave them great authority. So when God's judgment is coming upon this earth, Christian, keep in mind, God will not punish his people with the wicked, ever. Ever. He's already punished us fully in Christ. There is no more wrath due for our sins. You say, well, Pastor, what, happened, what about the sins I commit after that? Well, Romans chapter 4. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not count sin. God doesn't count our sins against us. So when you sin or I sin, God doesn't count that as sin. All of our sins have been punished already. There's no more wrath reserved for us. So when God's wrath falls upon a nation, when it falls upon the world, what happens to the Christians? We're preserved from it or we're preserved through it. But we always have that promise. God's judgment is for the wicked alone. Jesus drank, I love the term, the cup of God's wrath for us. He drank every last bit of God's anger towards your sin and towards my sin. When Jesus got done at the cross, there was nothing left for God to be angry with us about. Don't you love that? And not only that, we're given the active righteousness of Jesus Christ. Right? We always forget that, I think. I do. When I think about salvation, I think, oh, my sins are, are washed away, right? I'm, I'm sinless. I'm sin-free. But he didn't just take our sins from us. He gave us something. What did he give us? The righteousness of Christ. He gave us. So Jesus came. And could Jesus have come as a 30-some-odd, 33-year-old man? Could he, could he have just come to earth, stay hidden away, do nothing publicly, go to the cross and die for our sins. Theoretically, he could have done that. But see, Jesus had to do something particular. He had to keep the law. He had to obey God. Because we are not just guilty of our sin in the, in the sense of we have original sin, we have Adam's sin, but we have disobeyed the law of God. We are lawbreakers. So we're not just neutral before God. We are lawbreakers. So Christ had to live a sinless life. He had to be perfect. He had to keep the law fully so that his righteousness could be given to us. I was talking to my wife about this earlier this week. That's what makes us better than the angels. 
We're not just sinless. The angels are sinless, but they don't have the perfect righteousness of Christ. So in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, we see that glorious vision of Jesus on the throne. And what are the angels doing? Covering their face. They can't even look at him. What does Revelation say about us? They shall see his face. He'll dwell among his people. We behold the face of God because we have the righteousness of God. And that's given to us freely by Jesus Christ, imputed to us, counted to us. Just as our sins were counted to Christ, his righteousness. So God didn't just take away your sin. He gave you perfect and complete righteousness. Say, well, why do I still sin? Because we're still working out the battle of the old and the new natures. One day that battle will be complete and we will stand complete in Christ fully. So you say, well, pastor, how, what, how long are we saved? How do we lose our salvation? That's the thing. How can you lose that which you never did? We have Christ's righteousness. That means as long as Christ is righteous, we are righteous. Think there's any chance that Christ is going to backslide? I don't. As long as Christ is perfect, we are perfect. As long as Christ is sinless, we are sinless. So when judgment comes, and judgment is coming, judgment is here in our nation, don't let that trip up your faith or make you waver or falter in any way. God will take care of his people. God will see his people through. God will protect his people. God is not angry with his people. He loves his people. We mentioned last week, he sings over his people. He rejoices over you and me. A couple of takeaway thoughts tonight. I want us to mark down. God is inclusive. God loves everybody. Remember the old Sunday school song, red, brown, yellow, black, and white. They are precious. And that's true. Everybody. God loves. He died for the world. And he's saving the world. Don't let bitterness or prejudice creep into your heart. Hatred. That has no place in the heart of a Christian. No place at all. The Great Commission is to take the gospel to every creature. Secondly, God can preserve his people even in bad environments. Since Zephaniah lived during the time that he did, he lived during the time of wicked King Manasseh, a time of great wickedness in the land of Israel, and his son Ammon. God preserved him through that. And he prophesied during Josiah's reforms. By the way, God preserves his people. Though Manasseh corrupted the land, Josiah reformed it. <coughs> Number three, God will judge the wicked. But his people find grace in his eyes. That's why the command is to flee to Jesus, flee for refuge, flee for rescue. There's safety in Jesus. There's protection in Jesus. Our cry of this world is a cry to flee from your sins.
in your sins, all you'll find is judgment and wrath and the righteous anger of God. But we are urging men to flee to Jesus, who in himself absorbed all of the anger and wrath and righteous judgment of God against sin. He is the only safe place. Make sure, church, that you are in Christ tonight. Make sure you're trusting him. Make sure you're loving him. Make sure you're serving him. Make sure you're loving others. A true sign that we're his disciples that we have love one for another. If there's hatred in your heart, that's a sure sign you don't love Christ tonight. We can't hate anybody. And God preserves his people. Trust him, love him. Don't let what's going on in this world trip up your faith, Christian. Don't let it. God will see his people through. As we prepare next week, we'll go into the verse by verse of it. The judgment's coming on Judah. But even in, I've been studying this the last couple of weeks, even in these harsh judgments that's coming on Judah, there's still the promise of restoration. God said, I'm gonna lay you, I'm gonna lay you waste but I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to build you back up and I'm going to drive all sin away from you. I'm so thankful for Christ, what he did. I'm thankful for the new covenant. I was reading that just the other day on where I'm out on vacation. The new covenant he makes with the house of Israel. He says, I'll put my law into their hearts and their sins and their iniquities I'll remember no more. What a blessed promise. What a blessed promise. Let's pray tonight. Our Father, we thank you for this time together as we finish off this introduction to the the prophet Zephaniah, Lord. As we are coming into this passage on judgment, may it remind us how much you hate sin. May it make us appreciate the great price that you paid for our sin. Oh, Lord, drive sin far from our hearts. May we not fiddle with, play with, amuse ourselves in the sins for which Christ died. May that which breaks your heart break ours as well. Make us people after your own nature, your own character, holy, righteous, honest, just, equitable, May we love truth and hate the lie. Through these studies, Lord, I hope that we will have a a better grasp of just how bad sin is. And may we seek every day to flee more and more to Christ. Root out those sins in our heart, Lord. Those ones, maybe, maybe we don't know about it. Maybe we've forgotten about it. Maybe we've hidden it down there. It's a pet sin. We have it on a chain. We think we have it well under control. Help us to realize that sin is a roaring lion. It can't be bound with a chain. It can't be controlled. You've said if we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. We ask you tonight. Search our hearts. Try us. If there's any wickedness in our hearts, Lord, root it out of us. We love you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the great absorber of the wrath of God for me, the one who gave me his righteousness.
Thank you for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who ministers to us, who works in us to change us, to conform us more to Christ. Thank you for your word, for your church. I ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.